Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us the bread of life, Jesus. Now we pray that you will feed us that bread until we are fully satisfied. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. The uh, emperor decided to strengthen the empire by returning to the old religions which had given the empire its power in the beginning. He decided to bring back the worship also of the empire itself, primarily in the person of the emperor, but temples were built all across the empire. A beautiful temple was built to Emperor Domitian in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the hometown of the last of the apostles, John. That's where John had been caring for Jesus' mother for some time. She was probably deceased by that time. It came to the emperor's attention that this sect, which had long been troublesome to the empire, had its remaining greatest leader in Ephesus, right there where emperor worship was being revived. And so he ordered John's arrest. We can visualize the soldiers trampling, tramping up through the mist of the early morning to John's hillside home overlooking the sea on the western shore of Turkey, arresting him and bringing him to his decreed fate. We have it on good authority that Domitian ordered that he be boiled in oil. Fortunately for all of us, he failed to cook. must have been quite astonishing to his persecutors that that sizzling oil which should have turned him into a cheese curl left him unscathed. I wonder what method they used for extracting him. Did they have to wait for the oil to cool or was he on some kind of block and tackle and they could haul him out? I don't know, but anyway, they got him out and having, been in, having inquired what they should do with him, the Emperor said, well, if we can't kill him, we better get him out of sight, send him to Patmos. It's a death island. We work people to death in the mines there, in the quarries there. But John didn't die, and he didn't die, and he didn't die. Though all the rest of the apostles were dead, he was still living. And we might ask ourselves, why was he still alive? Was it because he was Jesus' favorite? And we immediately think, impossible. But actually, it's true. The reason he was still alive was because he was Jesus' favorite. But why was he Jesus' favorite? Because he drew near to Jesus. He was a very young man when he started following Jesus, still in his teens. And he worshipped Jesus. Young men have worshipped many, many, many idols. And all of them have led them astray. But this young man worshipped the one, the one who 
whom we can safely worship. And he drew so near to him and idolized him and adored him and followed him. And Jesus, of course, allowed him to draw closer and closer because John wanted to be exactly like Jesus. And John, in that process, picked up something from Jesus that the other disciples picked up only to a lesser degree. Something so important and so urgent that Jesus had to make sure he lived long enough to pass it on to us. In fact, I don't know whether it's occurred to you, but there is much internal and external evidence that John had the last word in Scripture, period. Just as Moses had the first word in Scripture, John had the last word. He had the last gospel that was written. He had the last prophecy that was written. He even had the last epistles to be written. John got the final word. He put the capstone on the revelation of God in the sacred scripture. And there's a reason for that. Because John found something, experienced something, was able to share something which was desperately needed and still not perfectly communicated until finally around 100 A.D. when John found the time to write. That's why I love the Gospel of John. Because in it, we find such astonishing truth. Such astonishing. It's so astonishing that when we first read it, it sounds crazy. It even sounded crazy to the people who heard it first. If you want to turn with me, I'm going to John, the sixth chapter. You may remember the story here. It was Passover season, which is springtime, isn't it? But Jesus was not yet in Jerusalem. He was in Galilee. And he crossed the sea, probably for some relaxation and rest. But we read in the second verse, a great multitude followed him. They probably went around by foot the northern edge of the lake, a few miles around the edge of the lake, and came to him on the farther shore. Jesus watched them coming. He and his disciples were sitting on the hillside, we understand from verse 3, and they watched this multitude of people coming. It would be hard to miss them because there were thousands of them. And as they watched the people coming, Jesus had the most practical thought. Who is going to feed those people? Sounds like my wife. Who is going to feed all those people? And the disciples were kind of, you know, thinking like we would normally think, well, it's their fault if they came, they have take care of themselves, but of course Jesus never thinks that way. Um, and so they started trying to be creative. Well, let's see, uh, if we could raise 200 
denarii, but even that wouldn't be enough to give them all just a taste. Um, so they're, they're speculating about this. And when the crowd arrives, Jesus comes a little ways down the mountainside and says, now, you know, it's wonderful to see you folks. Why don't you all just have a seat? Sit down here in this nice, tall, fresh, green grass and have a seat, and we'll have some lunch. <laughs> now, folks, let me just point out the obvious here. If you're going to give people some bread, you're going to need to have some bread. Are you, hear, are you hearing this? Yeah. If you're going to give people some bread, then you're going to need to have a supply yourself. That, I think, is the central thought I want to share with you this morning. We are all givers. Givers, 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 givers. And we are trained, and we are competent, and we know how to do our work, and we can do it well. And we can do it, you know, <laughs> with one arm tied behind our back, as it were. We can do it when we're groggy. We can do it when we're, when we're exhausted. We can still do our job because we've done it and done it and done it, and we know how to do it. We have competence. But feeding the people is more than that, isn't it? It's more than that. If you really want to give the people bread, you're going to have to have some bread. So the disciples understood that, and of course Jesus did too, but they couldn't comprehend what he had in mind. So in verse 10, he tells them to sit down. And in verse 11, they found a lunch, of course. Some plan-ahead mother <laughs> sent a lunch with her kid. And much like Elijah of old, Jesus said, give that to me. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down. Thousands of people. Now, I don't know how the disciples could even do it. I mean, if I saw Jesus take somebody's lunch and start breaking these loaves in half and distributing these fishes out, I, you know, after the first initial distribution, I would be saying, where's that coming from? And I would have a hard time actually moving away from the scene because I would want to just, what is he doing? What? I, I'm observing creation of something out of nothing, which is the way the Bible says creation always takes place. You know, what's amazing is when Jesus makes something out of nothing, it turns into something. People were filled when they ate that food. So they had bread. And why did they have bread? Why did they have bread? They had bread because they had Jesus. That's the reason they had bread. It's the only reason they had bread. I suggest to you that we can do many things for many people, but we must ask the question, do we have the bread? Do we have the bread? So it says in verse 12 that they were filled. They were all filled up. 
They were satisfied. Isn't it great to eat and be filled? My wife has this make more than you think you need policy. I'm so grateful for that because I think I need more. I've been in homes where it seems like they plan on making a little less than might be needed. Just, you know, just to keep you from overdoing, right? But Jesus, thankfully, doesn't have that policy. Let's give them more than they need. So much that they'll fill up and they won't even want anymore and everybody will have gone back for seconds and some will have gone back for thirds and then there's the hopeless ones who have gone back for fourths and still there's some left over. Twelve baskets we read because Jesus believes in abundance. <laughs> That's why it tells us plainly in Malachi chapter 4 that in the kingdom we're all going to get fat. Well, You've read that, haven't you? Therefore, they gathered up 12 baskets with fragments. Well, the people were impressed. Oh, were they impressed. They were just thrilled. You could hear the little conversations between themselves, talking about, wow, this, we thought these were just stories from the old days, how Moses brought down manna and everybody ate for 40 years. But think of it. The prophet is back. Just, this is the one that was promised. The prophet like Moses, it must be. I mean, look, at he's bringing bread out of nowhere. And, and, and we're fed and we're filled and we're, we're not hungry. Think of what that could mean for, for our country if he could just feed everybody all the time. Well, that would just change the whole economic balance. We wouldn't have to work so hard for food. We wouldn't have to spend our money on food. We could spend our money on other things. We could all become richer. And furthermore, we could, be, we could, be, uh, uh, we could go on uh, long uh, marches. We know, we know the Messiah is supposed to take us and, and dominate the world uh, uh, militarily. And, and so we, we wouldn't need these long supply lines. And well, They're just on and on and on talking about the advantages it would be to have such a leader as Jesus. And pretty soon the popular sentiment rises so high that they're starting to say, you know what, this guy's cautious, he's shy, he's obviously not pushing himself forward. He, he must be waiting for us to just take up the cause. And so they were beginning to huddle together and saying, let's, let's just take him and let's just carry him, if need be, down to Jerusalem and let's tell him that we in Galilee believe this is the Messiah and we are going to make him the king. Well, of course, whether they were talking loudly, as I just was, or whether they, whether Jesus just, you know, knew, as he so often did, what they were doing, he knew, and so he ran away. It's basically what it says in verse 15. He ran away by himself. Didn't take any of the disciples along. He was in good shape, you know. Jesus was a strong man. And he just starts running up the mountainside. They can't even follow him. They can't even catch him. And he's up there by himself. And they all know he's disappeared. Well, it was a little let down to them, but of course they, they were still thinking about that. So those who were there started going back across to, uh, to uh, Capernaum on the other side. Meanwhile, some other... Uh, interested parties were just heading out, hoping to meet Jesus where they thought he was, in, uh, from Tiberias, the little city on the 
western shore of Galilee, and they were in boats going across that way, and then, and then some other boats were coming across this way and gathering in Capernaum, and, and uh, the disciples decided they might as well go back too. Jesus was gone. They didn't know where he'd gone. And so they went, got in the boat, but the winds were contrary almost from the start, and they were rowing. The Bible says they rowed for three or four miles. I don't know if you've ever rowed against the wind for very long, but oh, man. I remember a contrary wind, and I was trying to get a kayak back in, in Hawaii some years ago. I really thought I was going to die out there. It is so hard to row that long and that hard against the wind, and they were pretty exhausted. It was the middle of the night, and then this being comes walking across the water, and uh, I love what he says. He says, it's me. Don't be afraid. Those are profound words, aren't they? It's me. Don't be afraid. Are you afraid of Jesus? There are Christians who are afraid of Jesus. So they let him in the boat. The Bible says immediately they were at their destination. Another miracle. Well, morning comes, and the people have gathered now in Capernaum where they understand him to be. Even the latecomers from Tiberias have come there, and everybody says, Jesus is here? We knew he'd come here, but he's here already? How'd you get here? Another miracle. They're impressed all over again. They want to talk to Jesus. They persuade him to have a meeting in the Capernaum synagogue. Capernaum synagogue. Some of you have probably been there. I've been there. And uh, it's a pretty large place. You could, you could fit a lot of people in there. And so they gather in there, shoulder to shoulder, back to knee. And Jesus begins to talk with them. Rabbi, when did you come here, they ask. But he doesn't answer their question. He says... You are seeking me because you saw, not because you saw even the miracles, but because you ate the loaves and you were filled. In other words, you're not seeking me because you're interested in my spiritual blessings that I might be able to bring. You're seeking me because you're interested in what I can provide materially. That is a big deal. One of my greatest discouragements as a pastor for all these years now has been Adventist prayer meetings. And you're going to think, yes, it is tragic, isn't it, how few come. No, that's not what my discouragement is. My discouragement is the way Adventists pray. I've had prayer meetings where there have been a couple hundred people. And even so, there's something wrong with the prayers. The prayers tend to be about the material bread instead of about the spiritual bread. Even the, even the praise services are about the material. Lord, thank you for saving me from that accident. Thank you for blessing me with better health. Thank you for giving us enough of all the things we need. Thank you, thank you for all these material things. And it's about the material. 
When we pray, it's just on and on. For my aunt who has this problem, my sister has that problem, my children who have these problems, for our needs, for the church's needs, for more money, for more success, all these things, on and on and on and on and on. Jesus has something more important to tell us. John was saved from boiling oil and made to live past all the others because there's something more important that we must know. You can't give bread you don't have. You seek me because you saw the, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and you were filled. Do not labor for food which endure, uh, do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Well, they perceived. Ha-ha, lights are coming on. He's talking about spiritual things. Ah, he's talking about spiritual things. Well, let's respond to that then. They said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Same Jews, almost 2,000 years later, still in the old covenant. All that you say we will do, everything you've said we will do, so just tell us what to do, we'll do it. Then maybe we can have some bread. (laughs) There's still many Adventists in that position, folks, many Adventists. Jesus said these wonderful words, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. The work of God that you must do, the obedience that you must do, the commandments that you must keep, the effort you must make, the energy you must put forth is to believe, really believe in me. In a minute, he's going to define what he means by that believing. Really believe in me. Not uh, just philosophically, not just theologically. It's easy to do that. Tell you folks, how many sermons have we heard about Jesus? And yet not been filled up with Jesus. This is the work of God. They said, well, Moses gave us, Moses gave us food. Are you, you going to do that? And he says to them in verse 32, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. They still think he's talking about food. And they say, Lord, give us this bread all the time. Isn't that what it says in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Well, literally, Lord, just, you know, you, can, you see now that you can do it. It's easy for you. You don't even seem tired. You ran right up the mountain afterwards. Just give it to us all the time. 
Focus on what we need, our material needs. That's the Messiah we want, the material Messiah. Tragically, those of us who are involved in evangelism of any kind can be materialists also. And then Jesus said something which literally sounds still to our modern ears after 2,000 years of Christianity, still sounds psychotic. He said, I am the bread. He stood there in the synagogue in Capernaum and said, I am the bread. Of all the apostles, John is the only one to tell this experience because John got it. I am the bread. What? On earth is he saying? Of course, Christians today say, oh, we, we get that. We understand. It's about the communion. If we, you read it in the commentaries. That's all they say. Shallow, shallow, shallow. You could wade across the water in some of those commentaries. Yes, it's about the communion, and the communion is about this. But how many even get what the communion's about? Communion is utterly worthless unless we go beyond the metaphor. We eat the broken bread. What are we really eating? The body of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. We're eating the flesh, the life, the human life of Jesus. That human life in which human strength and human power and human wickedness and human desire and human lust were all broken once and for all. And we want that brokenness. We want to eat the life of Jesus Christ because we want to share the brokenness. You are what you eat. One of the best arguments in the world against pork. But you, you are what you eat. It becomes you. It, you, it becomes part of you on a, on, a, on a cellular level. The very molecules of what you eat become you. And so Jesus uses this metaphor. It's a beautiful metaphor. You must eat me. If you're going to have any bread to share, then you've got to have bread. You must eat me. How that changes our prayer lives. I have a friend who starts his prayer by saying, Jesus, I want to thank you for you. Wow. How do you think Jesus feels when he hears a prayer like that? I think he smiles. Somebody finally gets it. You don't need my blessings. You need me. You don't need my miracles. You need me. You don't need my help. You need me. I mean, how many times have I prayed those help prayers and gotten hardly any help at all? You know what I'm talking about. When I had my son at home, I'd say, son, come over here and help me. It's a great thing about having kids. You know, they have to do what you say. Until they get to a certain age. Come over and help me. I'm, I need some help carrying this long board here. The assumption is, of course, 
then I'm going to carry one end and he's going to carry the other end. That's what it means. That's what we mean when we say, help me. The only thing that is, in the work of God, we can't do any of it. Oh, you'll argue with me, some of you. You'll say, oh, we have to do our part. Jesus just told us what our part was. Believe in me. Did you hear the word of God? We'll work hard, but it won't be us, will it? Because he's not helping us. He's working through us. It's all got to be him. The part that's me is going to be messed up. The part that's me is going to be poorly done. The, the lack of effectiveness of my work is going to be because I'm helping him. The part that doesn't work is my part. The part that does work is his part. Always, always, always. I can't communicate the gospel, but Jesus sure can. Oh, Jesus, touch our hearts now. You be the one who does it. I am the bread of life, he says. I am the bread of life. And in verse 41, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread. Well, Jesus doesn't back off. He's not a politician. Verse 48, he says it again. I am the bread. Verse 51, he says it again. I am the living bread. And finally, he says in that same verse, the bread that I shall give you is my flesh. Oh, they're just getting more and more disgusted. This guy is an egotist. He's a, he's a maniac. He's crazed. What on earth? Even in our ears today, it sounds so radical. Verse 52, they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They just had no spiritual conception, but do we? Verse 53, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 55, my flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. This is not transubstantiation. This is not theological. This is not doctrinal. This is experiential. This is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the kernel of the gospel. This is the purpose for which we were created. What? Don't you know you're the temple of the Holy Ghost? We were made for the union of the human and the divine. No one gets this except John fully. Paul too, but he says it couched in such theological language. John just comes right out and says it. He remembers the words in which Jesus spoke so clearly. I want to be connected with you on a molecular level. I want you and me to be inseparable, to be, to be indivisible, to be eternally one in every way that that means, not just philosophically. I want you to partake of me. You must be partakers of the divine nature. I want to live in you. Oh, the glory of having Jesus live in us. What a fantastic, fantastic privilege. He says earlier, when he talks about the quality of this bread, that if we eat this bread, we will not be hungry anymore. And I used to I used to think that meant that, you know, if I ever could just get a taste of that bread, if I could ever just really enter into Jesus, really eat the life of Jesus, that I would be 
forever delivered from all ordinary fleshly hunger. Did you ever have such a dream? How great it would be to no longer have to worry about desiring something that I shouldn't desire. Because that's what all the other bread is, right? It's not the real bread. To be so satisfied that I would never again desire the wrong thing. But then we're, we're missing the metaphor, aren't we? Bread that makes you not hungry anymore doesn't mean bread that makes you never hunger anymore. It just means that you're satisfied until your next meal. That's the metaphor. That's why Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. How often do we need to eat Jesus? Very frequently, yes. And when we do that, then we are quite satisfied. Filled up and with extra. Because when I eat Jesus, because he feeds me on the plan that I mentioned earlier, the excess plan, I always have bread to give. Do you hear me? It's such a precious thing. I'm not talking theoretically here. I'm talking really. If I'm filled up with Jesus, I always can encourage somebody else. Hallelujah. If I'm filled up with Jesus, I can always listen to somebody else caringly and understandingly and compassionately. If I'm filled up with Jesus, I can see, like the blinders have been taken off my eyes. If I'm filled up with Jesus, then his thinking becomes mine. His feelings become mine. His desires become mine. His priorities become mine. His agenda becomes mine. The life of Jesus in me is Jesus living in me. I am persuaded that our great need of Seventh-day Adventists, <laughs> this seems so strange, is Jesus. Well, that's so elementary. That's the beginning. But look, we have everything else. We have so much of everything else that we're squabbling over it and trying to see if it can use any adjustment. We have all the great doctrines, all the great theology, all the great prophecies, and all the great health messages. Let's not forget that. All the great lifestyle issues. We got it. No Christian organization has ever risen to the pinnacle of New Testament truth that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has risen to. And the Lord looks at us through the eyes of the Apostle John and gives us his final diagnosis and his final prescription. He says, you think you're so rich, but you're actually poor. In fact, he says something so weird, it's hard to imagine. He says, you're miserable and don't even know it. Now, I want you to know something. When I'm miserable, I know it. In fact, when I'm miserable, everybody knows it. Because I am a real baby when it comes to misery. And yet, he says here, you're miserable and don't even know it. You are so satisfied with everything else 
that you don't even know you're hungry. How astonishing is that? I cannot say, even though I've experimented with it now all my career, exactly how to do health evangelism or exactly how to mingle gospel ministry with medical ministry. I'm not giving up. I'm still experimenting. But one thing I know absolutely for sure from experience, none of it has any effect unless I'm filled up with the bread from heaven. Jesus says to those who are miserable and don't know it, if any of you are aware enough of your hunger to at least listen and you happen to hear me knocking and you happen to open the door, I will come in. I will come in. I don't know about you, but that's what I need. My prayers are so much more powerful when I say, Jesus, don't help me. Just come in and take over. Jesus, I got to preach now, but don't let me preach. Just do it. Jesus, I got to talk to these people. And Jesus, I don't even like these people. They're annoying. And besides that, they've been breaking all the rules and they don't even deserve any help. They won't even appreciate my good suggestions when I make it. Jesus, I can't talk to these people. You talk to them. And I'll tell you, folks, it's awesome. I know you've tried this, but we need to do it every time. Every time. Come on. Let's not, let's not rely on our competence anymore, huh? Because our competence makes us incompetent in evangelism. It's just amazing. I, I, these people, as I said, I don't even like them. And uh, Jesus, you do it. And you know what happens. The most astonishing compassion spontaneously breaks out. Because when we do the one work of believing, Jesus does the rest of the work. Now, I've got to be there. I've got to open my mouth. But Jesus is doing it. It actually feels great. I find myself after that appointment saying, Lord, I can't believe it. I actually enjoyed that appointment. And I think, I think they got something out of it. Look like they did. You know, you go and you say, Jesus, somebody's got to do this. It's an unpleasant task. Things have to be said. Okay, Lord, I'm just going to go in there and I'm just going to say it. I'm going to lay it on the line. I'm going to forget politics and I'm going to say what has to be said. So Jesus, help me. And you come away saying, Okay, that's done. Came out about the way I thought it would. Too bad. Or you say, Jesus, you love this person. You adore this person. You gave your life for this person. You would have given your life for this person if he'd been the only person on center on the planet. You know how to talk to this person. So, Leave me out of it. 
come and talk to this person, Jesus. Their results are astonishing. Now, I'm not saying you can live in peace with all men at all times. I'm just saying the results are astonishing because Jesus can reach men's hearts. Amen? He can reach men's hearts. I love being a temple of the Holy Ghost. I love being a shell with God inside. I love being flesh with the divine living in. Jesus was the first flesh fully occupied by the divine. Flesh just like ours, fully occupied by the divine. Look what happens. Now that is our high calling, amen? That is what we're called to. That is what Adventism is really meant to reveal. We've been marching toward the ceiling. Do we know what it means? I don't mean that ceiling. I mean this ceiling. In this same chapter, John chapter 6, Jesus says, the reason God can use me is because I'm sealed. In the morning, this will produce quite a change if you take on this this challenge of eating the bread. No more through the Bible devotionals. Anything wrong with through the Bible? No, no, no. Do that during your lunch hour. When you are feeding on Jesus, you better feed on Jesus. How many times have I been doing this through the Bible thing and get stuck for weeks in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, I say, Lord, all these curses, is that what you're trying to tell me? Is, that, is this for me? And I know I'm bad. Let me tell you what, folks. Eat Jesus. At least once a day. Start with at least once a day, okay? Eat Jesus. Meditate on him especially the closing scenes, you know, the whole thing. It's just so fantastic. Eat Jesus. Think about him. Just think about it. Let the stories come to life in your mind. Eat Jesus. Find out what moves his heart. He says, I have bread to eat you don't know anything about. What is his bread? Loving us. Listening to us. Caring for us. Isn't that it? Find out his heart. Absorb it. Don't get off your or out of your comfortable chair in the morning until you have joy. Because the fruit of His presence is always joy. How many times I've gotten up from my devotional saying, well, okay, check that off the list. What's next? Okay, well, I prayed. I laid it all out before Him. I sure hope for the best. And I have to admit now in my morning devotionals, I don't even spend a lot of time telling you about all the things I wanted to do for me during that day. I just say, Jesus, I want you. The Lord has taught me to wake up in the morning. The very first thought I have is, Jesus, Jesus, I need you. Desperately need you. Without you, my competence will get in the way. you believe me? Do you believe him? How satisfied is he when we want him? <laughs> you can make his day. 
I've had women come to me in counseling, you know. Pastor, my husband's a good man. He's one of the leaders in the church. He's very faithful, very devoted. But I feel like he's not emotionally available to me. By the way, that's a dangerous thing, you know, listening to a woman say that. But they do. And I realize it's true. <laughs> it's true so much of the time. But God told me one time, you're not emotionally available to me. I read from Ellen White how much joy there is in a mother's heart when she's been carrying this baby, holding this baby, nursing this baby. And then the morning comes when the baby looks the first time into her eyes with love and with a smile. And we read in Desire of Ages, that's the way the Lord feels when we finally appreciate Him and want Him and desire Him. Because this is not just a transaction of receiving the force. This is the man, the person, the lover of my soul, Jesus Christ, who stands knocking at the door. I want in because I'm your strength, I'm your power, but I also want in because I love you. Will you let me love you. So amazing. Jesus lost his following after that. The thousands went away annoyed and disgusted. It says in verse 66, they walked with him no more. They couldn't handle a religion which involved somebody an alien power moving inside of them. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? And Peter, always quick to respond, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Well, you've been in Christianity long enough to have a hunger to have a desire, to have a yearning, and you folks above all are the most sincere. And I count myself among you as being very sincere. Let me tell you something, I don't have enough of Jesus yet. But I know one thing for sure, he's all I need. And he's all I want. And I'm going after Jesus more every day, how about you? Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, give us now Jesus. We have so often prayed for the blessings, so often prayed for everything else, things we truly need, things which would make your work go better, things which are valid and valuable things, and even the comforts of this world, and even some of the blessings, and even to be spoiled a little bit, and we know you don't hate us for that because you love to bless us, and you love to give us all these things, and you love to make us happy. But oh, Jesus, how we have hurt you, and we have failed to say, Jesus, I want you. You now, enter me. Enter me. 
So Jesus teaches us to make that our primary prayer, our most frequent prayer, our most heartfelt prayer, a prayer that we pray out of desperation and also out of great confidence because you have said, if anybody opens the door, I will come in. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.